everyone. Um, as with, I'm going to roll my sleeves up because I just can't work without rolling my sleeves up. I'm nearly going to take the tie off, but I've got to look somewhat smart. So as many of you know, uh, Jen and I tend to do these talks together. We will chat and do different elements of the discussion, and we take it in turns. But that, I think, is a reflection of how we work. Uh, when you're doing stewardship, it's a collaborative approach. It has to be at the very fundamentals. You can't have one physician saying, this is how it's going to be. You can't have a pharmacist saying, this is how you need to dose stuff. You need a, a mixture of, of things. And, um, and then beyond that, we need the collaboration with the broader picture. Look around the audience, I can see about a half dozen people who are on the stewardship committee, which is nice. Obviously, you're here to support me, and that's wonderful. <laughs> um, so we'll get started, and I think Jen's going to do some more of the background stuff, um, at least as we get going. Okay. Thank you again. So I think the first thing we have to just formally tell you is neither one of us have any actual or potential conflicts of interest. Um, our objectives today are going to be to explain the current state of antimicrobial concerns um, because they are continuing to escalate, as well as the new regulatory requirements for antimicrobial stewardship, identify the resources that we do have available for each and every one of you to utilize to really help you utilize, uh, sorry, help you in your clinical practice. And then we're gonna go through some cases of some, everything from a typical case to a very rare case at this point in time on how we can help you improve care of your patients here. So this is a slide that we've shown you probably for a few years now, but I think it's a very important point, is that essentially we are getting less and less real new antibiotics each year, okay? We have luckily gotten a few new antibiotics in the past year and a half, but the problem with these new antibiotics is a lot of them are either me too drugs, meaning instead of being linazolid, it's tetazolid. If you get resistance to one, you get resistance to them both. So it's not really that helpful, or they're just slightly different. They add an extra beta-lactamase inhibitor on. So yes, you get a little bit of extra activity, but for how long? Every single antibiotic that's out there on the market today has been reported to have resistance with it. So even the brand new shiny ones, unfortunately, as soon as they're making it to the market, because they're only slightly different, if that, have resistance quickly occurring. The other thing as well is some of the newer drugs, because they have these enzyme inhibitors, they only work against certain enzymes. So even a newer drug with a much broader uh, spectrum of activity is going to come to the market with resistance already present, because it's not going to work for every potential drug that's out there, a bug that's out there. So I think it's really important, as, you, as Bennett mentioned, it's important to really understand the unique principles of each medication, because it's not just, oh, this is the big broad one that we can use for everything. You really need to know each medication on where its unique benefit is, and that's one of the areas that we can help you with as well when they're needed. The other thing to think about is how much of antibiotics are unnecessary. One in three antibiotics prescribed in children's hospitals are unnecessary on a national basis. So maybe we do slightly better than some of the other places, but overall we probably have a lot of antibiotics that we can decrease their use, whether it's less duration or less empiric therapy for viral infections, those type of things. And we're going to try and really help narrow it to the narrowest effective agent utilized for your patient's therapies. The other thing, and this came out of Johns Hopkins this past year, is one in five hospitalized patients who receive an antibiotic suffer at least one adverse effect. Many of the times those adverse effects are minor, but that's still a really striking number that 20% of every antibiotic prescribed has an adverse effect associated with it. 
Um, the other thing to think about is the cases of C. diff. Even within our pediatric patients, we're seeing increased risk of C. diff-associated disease. And we're often finding that it's occurring more often in the spring. So a lot of those antibiotics that are used in the winter time when a lot of viral infections are going around, those patients are presenting two months later with C. diff and coming into the hospital. So we really want to limit it to when we really need to utilize these antibiotics to try and prevent some of these complications. Because the other issue is C. diff is not a one and done. Essentially, they showed, it is not, oh sorry, 20% of C. diff infections have a recurrence. That was a striking number when we saw it on the CDC website, even to me, that, that it has that high of an increase. I actually saw a patient just in the last week who had appropriately, thankfully, uh, uh, received antibiotics uh, for a strep infection and then had recurrent strep and so had another round of antibiotics and then another round of antibiotics and then ended up with C. diff and, and then got a different round of antibiotics of the C. diff and then another round of antibiotics for C. diff and the GI consults it wouldn't go away. So this poor kid has now gone through four or five different uh, treatments for a strep throat which was treated appropriately with amoxicillin. So you wouldn't necessarily think that that was a high risk event but it's never a never event. Uh, it can happen. Um, so if you're using antimicrobials for unnecessary reasons, that risk just escalates. And it kind of brought home to me uh, how you know these statistics uh, affect real patients. And that's literally in, in just in the last week. That was an ID consult. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that's coming up is the issue of resistance, right? I alluded to it earlier with the new antibiotics having some resistance. But the statistics in the United States are over 2 million patients are infected with bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics, and 23,000 people die as a result of these infections. Luckily, more, the higher percentage of these are in elderly patients, but still, we're seeing some of this in pediatrics, and unfortunately, there's been almost a 200% increase in resistant infections within the pediatric <laughs> population for Enterobacteriaceae. Oh, from 2007 to 2017. So the numbers are, are pretty striking even in our population. The other thing is antibiotics we use all the time, right? It's one of the most commonly prescribed medications. So we really want to make sure, especially with resistance changing, that we're using them appropriately. This is where it gets a little tricky. And this information is from the CDC. As we'll show you later on in this presentation, we have hospital-specific antibiograms, which are going to be even more useful than this regional data. But the CDC does track regional susceptibility data. And just over time alone, you can see here, this is specifically for strep pneumonia in New England, that you can see that if you look at the purple one here, that penicillins, one of the classes we commonly use, that we had high rates of resistance that nicely came down but unfortunately, they're increasing again, right? How do we work with that? Well, here, one of the things that we utilize is we utilize three times daily amoxicillin dosing for pneumonia to really try and overcome this resistance. But that's information that you really need to know is what is your local resistance rates? How do those antibiotics work? And can we modify those antibiotics to overcome that resistance? Or do we need to go to a different antibiotic? So some of those things, as these things are changing so quickly, it's so important for us to provide you the right resources so that you can know those changes exist and how to easily manage that. Similarly with E. coli, you know, when I was training, and it wasn't that long ago, you know, we could utilize 
things like ampicillin-free and coli. But over time, we're over 50% resistance. So it's not something we can use empirically anymore. What can we use? You know, those types of things are going to be helpful. The scary part is even with E. coli and other Enterobacteraceae, we are starting to see some carbapenem resistance as well. Um, and we'll talk about that later in the presentation. Another thing that it's important for you guys to know, and you may have seen this, now the Centers for Disease Control and our Department of Public Health here in the state of Connecticut, it is a reportable condition if you have an Enterobacteraceae like E. coli, Enterobacter, Klebsiella, that is resistant to a carbapenem, that's a state reportable condition. And they're trying to use um, PCR testing to find out specifically what type of a carbapenemase it is, if it is a carbapenemase, and that will help us because there are certain medications or antibiotics that can be used against some of these and some other antibiotics can be used against other ones. And there are some cases, and we've seen at least one or two cases, where there is no carbapenemase. Instead, it's an efflux pump, likely on the surface of the bacteria. And then we can sometimes still get away with using carbapenems. So when it gets a little bit more complicated like this, again, we're trying to provide you guys resources to help have successful outcomes when there's only a few antibiotics that might be useful in these patients. One of the <clears throat> key things as well about this plasmid resistance is that it can cross species. So the last KPC that we saw was actually in an E. coli, not a Klebsiella, for example. Um, and so not only can they cross species, but the plasmids, of course, being DNA, is pretty stable. You can get DNA out of a woolly mammoth frozen from the Siberian permafrost. Um, so you can kill the bacteria, but the plasmids can still spread. So this is a huge infection prevention issue as well as antimicrobial stewardship issue. And the two really do go hand in glove, no pun intended. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, that's a key point. I think that's, that's still missing on a, on a few people's um, uh, mindsets and thought processes. And we've had discussions with uh, clinical teams in the hospital with a few of these plasmid-mediated resistances, not just the carbapenemases, but even an ESBL, an extended spectrum beta-lactamase. People are very familiar with contact precautions for MRSA, but less so with contact precautions for some of these. And I'll have a conversation with them, and they say, well, do we really need to go in and glove for this patient? How bad is it? And I say, well, you know how bad MRSA is? And they'll say, yes. And I say, well, then double it, because we don't just have to worry about the bug, we have to worry about the gene spreading. And there's literature actually from England which has shown that some outbreaks of antimicrobial resistance were not traced down to individual isolates of bacteria, but were traced down to the genetic level. So it was a plasmid that was being shared amongst a unit that led to an outbreak, but not necessarily a particular bacteria. And that's really, these things are going to do us in much more so than any of MRSA or vancomycin resistant. Uh, enterococcus, um, the gram-positives aren't as big a concern for me as these gram-negative resistance genes. They're really big problems, and they're global. So moving along to the regulatory requirements. So antimicrobial stewardship is now, as of January 1st, 2017, a joint commission requirement in each and every hospital in the U.S. This means job security. <laughs> 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 Why did they make it so? They say essentially ASPs can help prevent development of multi-drug resistant organisms. So if we use the narrowest effective agent for our patients, we're less likely to get resistance to those bigger guns. Um, and then also reducing unnecessary drug use and cost. And remember that cost is not only associated with the specific antibiotics, right? If we use vancomycin in somebody who already presents 
in AKI, guess what? We're going to probably worsen that, and if they need dialysis and so forth, that's gonna cost a lot more money for our patients than using something like linazolid. That initially, the drug cost is slightly higher, but is not going to cause AKI in our patients. So really, defining which patients, what medication is best for, and trying to prevent some of those bigger adverse effects is important. Other things like duration is also an important thing to try and decrease the total costs associated with some of those therapies as well. And then there are, as we were talking to Dr. Salazar with um, before this talk, is there are some medications, some of the newer medications that are just ridiculously expensive, you know, thousands of dollars for an individual dose, that yes, we will use it when we have no other options, but we really don't want to just be spending thousands and thousands of dollars on a single course of therapy. <laughs> Um, and then essentially what are those requirements? So essentially they want us to, to meet the CDC's core elements, which we're striving to achieve all of those elements, and then also providing healthcare providers and patients education. So all of you should have received some sort of education besides this about antimicrobial stewardship um, over the past year. Um, as well as now, all of our patients, the nurses do get in their AVS summaries education if they're going home on antibiotics. Um, because of this joint commission requirement. And I think it's just good as well. Okay. So this is our mission statement that we came up with a few years ago now. Um, we wanted a, a more global and comprehensive uh, approach. So aiming to improve the clinical care of children in the state of Connecticut through judicious use of therapies by providing you guys uh, with education, uh, research, and guidance, uh, not just about the use of antimicrobials, but about infectious diseases in general. So it's kind of a, a broad scope, but I felt that that um, touched on everything that was part of the, the core elements, as it happens, um, but also it just makes good sense. So a uh, typical case, this is a fairly standard case, and it may or may not uh, even go through the ID consult service, but we sometimes notice them, um, and I'll explain how some of that happens. So four-week-old, former 30-week uh, preemie in the NICU, blood culture is positive for Enterobacter, so this would um, not be something they were necessarily born with. Um, and it's got a little bit of resistance. Cefazolin, ceftriaxone, so first and third generation cephalosporins are gone. Uh, sensitive to cefepime, which is a fourth gen. Quinolones, uh, erdipenem, that's a nice one. Uh, Genton Toby. Um, so the questions that might arise from this. Uh, is cefepime still appropriate? Now, there are some resistance patterns where you may not trust certain uh, genes, uh, certain anti uh, antimicrobials based on the genes that the bacteria has. Um, cefepime may actually be indicated for a patient that has an AMP-C-mediated gene. Now, that's not something we actually can test for. Uh, AMP-C resistance is an inducible gene that the, we can uh, ask the lab to give us some information to guess about. And for sometimes we'll say, yeah, you should use cefepime. Uh, but that's the fourth generation. Uh, what are the risks associated with that in terms of further resistance? Is it necessary? Um, should you just switch classes? Uh, go to a quinolone. Uh, avoid the beta-lactam classes. Any young preemie infant, is that a concern for uh, tendon issues, bone development, uh, as the animal models have shown with rats? Um, or carbapenem? I mean, I said it was erdipenem susceptible. That would bypass a lot of the issues. Um, what are the risks associated with that? Should we escalate and then potentially promote the development of or select for a carbapenem resistance in the NICU? The other thing essentially on a patient like this is some medications, if this patient 
let's say we're three to four months old would be reasonable and there's more controversy regarding the dosing or at the safety of different antibiotics in a four-week-old. There's no data on how to dose erdipenem in this age. So you're not talking about a more narrow spectrum carbapenem in this type of patient. Instead, you would have to use a broader spectrum like meropenem, which is one of what we often consider our last line agents. Cefepime has controversial dosing in this type of a patient. There's good data in the early part of the NICU um, babies, but four weeks out, we don't have as much data on what the optimal dosing is, and two of our standard references are going to provide totally different recommendations. So depending on the severity of the patient, those type of things are going to come into play as well. And the, the last one, some of the residents will know the answer to this, is you know, if the patient's on Amgent empirically, is that okay because it was Gent susceptible? Gentamicin is one of the drugs I call a salt drug, it's synergistic, although lousy therapeutically. And salt, you would never have salt by itself. You want to sprinkle a little bit on another agent. So Gent plus something else is good, but Gent by itself is a good way to demonstrate clinical failure. Um, but that, that can still be a problem if people aren't you know, thinking about it and understanding what, where the risks are. Um, I haven't seen that here, thankfully, but um, it can happen. That's some of the questions that we might arise. So we might get involved in a number of different ways. So someone may request erdipenium. Now, because of many of the concerns that we've raised, Jen's raised and, and myself, um, drugs like cefepime and erdipenem, which we've demonstrated increased resistance rates to or concerns about dosing, are restricted. And the restriction is not to stop you using it. The restriction is to be forcing a conversation. If you want to use a drug like that, you should be talking to someone who knows more about the drug. So it's to engage that conversation. We may suggest alternatives, optimize the dosing. Um, so it's not to say you're not going to get it. It's just to say maybe you can get something better uh, or maybe you should um, you know, dose it Q8 or Q6 or the different per kilo dose. Um, we have a regular antimicrobial and culture review. So we literally sit down and go through every single patient in the hospital who gets an antimicrobial, as well as getting regular uh, daily culture results, uh, which are a day old, but we can still review them. And this is what we call retrospective review. Um, so people do what they need to do to treat the patients. Um, and then we, we can provide some feedback if there needs to be a tweak, a recommendation similar to uh, any restricted uh, antimicrobials. Um, we may get a, a notification through the ID console service. So ASP pharmacists, either Gen or the residents, uh, round with the ID service. Uh, and so they may hear about it and be able to provide almost real-time feedback if there's a question through the ID service. And we are in contact with the clinical team. Um, so, you know, I hate curbsides, but curbside question to the ID or the ID pharmacist members of the stewardship, either Jen or myself. You can also go through the pharmacy resident, uh, Caleb. Um, and uh, that direct communication is fine. Just a quick question, oh, you've got this patient with so-and-so, what should I do? Um, we will often make some recommendations. Sometimes it's hard to make those recommendations safely without knowing more about the patient. And we may recommend an ID consult but no one's forced to do an ID console. Uh, this is another typical case. This one, I think, is going to go down in history. Um, so previously healthy adolescent male had a ruptured RP. We see this all the time. Treated with ceftriaxone and flagell because that is our standard uh, evidence-based um, pathway through surgery. Didn't get better as expected despite drainage, but the cultures were found to be positive for Enterococcus and E. coli, which was in itself an ESBL. Uh, producer, steady spectrum beta lactamase. So the ceftriaxone wasn't working, basically. Uh, switched to erdipanem, 
Now if the E. coli uh, seemed to get a little bit better, uh, but then uh, had some worsening uh, symptoms again, had to go back to the OR for repeat drainage, uh, cultures again grew out E. coli, but this time uh, demonstrated not only resistance to carbapenems, but because of the PCR testing that we have available, uh, demonstrated as our first uh, identified KPC, uh, Tepsiella pneumoniae carbapenemase, in the E. coli, if that makes sense. So KPC is an enzyme, it knocks out just the carbapenems, but the cephalosporins, the penicillins, uh, everything below that. So the question really is, what do you do when no antibiotics are susceptible, when you've got nothing you can do? And what we were able to do is really work from first principles, uh, identify the best options from the literature, because we literally had nothing in the hospital that could really adequately treat this patient, uh, source and obtain the drug, and worked with pharmacy and IT to build a new EPIC interface for this drug with different options for prescribing, including extended infusion. Uh, and I had the honor of actually, well, I just wanted to do it, putting the first order through. It just made sense. Um, this required, obviously, very close communication with microbiology, but also downstream infection prevention, to give them a heads up and say, hey, we've got one of these in the hospital, um, BT dubs. Um, and the family, obviously, they have to understand the importance of doing all this. This, uh, this whole uh, process from uh, getting the phone call that we had a KPC to getting the drug in the patient was about three and a half hours. So that was pretty good. And I was extremely impressed with uh, the pharmacy and IT team to really kind of put that together and, and tweaked it on the fly in real time and then managed to get that out. Uh, so it kind of demonstrates what our uh, EMR can do uh, with the right people at the helm um, with the right needs for it. Um, we have a fairly broad team and this is out of necessity. As I said, you can't do this in isolation and the team has grown not just in terms of numbers but in terms of expertise. And I gather this morning we have, may have more members of the team potentially coming in from IT, which is nice. Um, obviously, Jen and I are the co-directors. Um, Oh, I'm an associate now. We've got to update that. That's not right. <laughs> um, you didn't read the slides that well. That's because it was a screenshot from last week. So uh, We have uh, Jabra's Lanzada, who's a clinical microbiologist. He's the head of clinical micro. We have uh, Brendan Campbell, who's contributed from surgery. He's actually helped us uh, lead a couple of clinical pathways, uh, pathway development. Um, Mindy Carpenter is our data analyst. She's a research assistant. Where's Mindy? Is she waved? There she is. Yay. Um, and so she's actually uh, really helped us with our reporting requirements. That's a new thing we've had to do this year. We've reported stuff internally and discussed it, but um, there's a difference between a spreadsheet and a, and a graph that you can actually re easily visualize and report out to people. Um, so Mindy's really uh, turned us around with that this year. We have representatives from infection prevention. Tracy's the one who's been with us this year. Uh, Grace Hong is our ID uh, APRN who we stole from IMT. Um, I'm very grateful to Dr. Sekarin for training her so well, because she's great. Um, but she's, we also brought her in not just because of her interest in ID, but she's been doing clinical pathway development from the educational side for years uh, in terms of building uh, Visio uh, flow sheets and uh, PowerPoint educational modules. So really, she's, uh, it's a nice segue for her to uh, link in with the ASP. And Stephanie McGuire from Neonatal ICU, who recently gave her own Grand Ranch presentation for the nurses, which was excellent, on antimicrobial stewardship. Uh, we have representatives uh, Andrew Orsi from Hemog, Adam Silverman, double dips with ER and PICU, because he has nothing else to do with his life. So many hats he wears. 
Um, Lana Wainak is uh, IMT, uh, but also has a strong interest in clinical pathway development. And then we also have uh, members of pediatric residency program. We have more than one because obviously not one can't make it every time. So they have several residents who are part of the team and ID pharmacy resident. And hasn't been mentioned yet, but Jen is the director of the pediatric ID pharmacy residency program. It's a second year program, which is almost unique in the country for existing and being fully accredited in a freestanding children's hospital. So we really are an educational uh, center here. Um, by the way, for the residents who are interested in stewardship, this counts for like a quality improvement thing for signing off on residency. These are the core elements. So leadership commitment. We have paid salaries. We have people who stand up for us and say we need a stewardship program in the hospital. Um, and that actually really struck me when I was hired here because I, when you're expected to show up, you normally there's a problem. And then someone identifies a problem and eventually they, they ask for money and someone says, all right, I'll give you 5% and you can go and run the stewardship program. What we had here is they hired us and then I went to the leadership and said, so what's your problems? Why do you need help? And they said, we don't know, it's your job to find out. So the commitment was a priori, which is incredible. And, and it shows kind of this forward thinking vision uh, because this was really five years before the joint commission requirements came in. Accountability, well, and that's the flip side. With great power comes great responsibility. So we have to report back up uh, to the, uh, the C-suite and we report to Andrew Bennon in quality. Um, we have the drug expertise, we have action. No. Uh, <laughs> action means you have to do what you're doing, make changes. You have to track your changes. <clears throat> you have to report on what's going on. And again, this is where Mindy's been incredibly helpful in terms of producing reports. And as you'll see, we have newsletters now that are going out from the ID pharmacist. And education, which includes this, the annual stewardship grand rounds. We have the cornerstone modules. There's education uh, for every resident who comes into the pediatric residency program on hire. There's a lot of stuff that goes out, as well as ad hoc uh, changes. So what we have here for your resources at Connecticut Children's is the first thing, um, which we'll show you in a little while on how to get to some of these things, but the first thing that we work with microbiology on is making sure that we have an antibiogram each and every year. And this is so important to keep an understanding and make it available to you guys of what the current resistance is. Um, as Bennett mentioned, we've be able, been able to start having an ASP monthly newsletter, which we'll show you about in a little while. We also work with Clinical Pathways and the Stewardship Committee to define empiric recommendations. Um, we also have antibiotic ordering, review, and feedback that Bennett talked about. We have our restricted medications, which we'll go over where you can access that and understand the restrictions. We have IV to PO recommendations that are approved. We have the Vanco per pharmacy protocol. We have recommendations on how to dose adjust voriconazole. And then as we mentioned, we have lots of educations. And then we also manage any of the back order. So if there's a back order on different antibiotics, the biggest one that probably has really affected us and every other children's hospital is the cefotaxime. Really, how do we manage that, especially in our NICU, that it was used on every other baby that had a, an issue with a fever? Okay, so where can you as clinicians access these resources? So on the intranet, they are available under the department or service. You know, we have our own antimicrobial stewardship. They allowed Bennett to keep it saying, you've got the bugs, we've got the drugs. Okay, so you can get to the clinical pathways here. Um, you can also get to um, the protocols and policies in case you want to know about antibiotic locks and so forth like that. 
Um, and then all of the other information is hidden over here under ASP information and links. Okay, we have our inpatient antibiotic guidelines as well as our outpatient antibiotic guidelines there. They're nice little cards that you can see the pictures of on the side. We also have these now available on the internet as well. Um, so if you're working in the community and want to access them, you can get them on the internet. Bennett has some printed out. You can email us. We've been able to mail them out as well. I think another message here is if you look who authored these, it's not just me. We've got special... Hey, look, Alyssa Bennett's in there. <clears throat> Heidi Anderson has gone on to do infectious disease, so is Camilla, I believe. Uh, these are all residents. These are residents, both pediatric and, and pharmacy residents, who developed these with us. So this is, again, this is not something that's just us making stuff up. It's, it's a team effort, and it's one of these quality improvement projects that people can get involved with and leave a lasting legacy. Uh, you know, in, in terms of what they've uh, built for the hospital. Um, and we do review them annually. It's not like we've left it. <laughs> no, it's, it's, yeah, so, yeah, we've had to change them and make recommendations. Uh, so every, every year, this is part of what we have to do. All these recommendations are reassessed and reevaluated uh, and, and changed if necessary. And we're also working with Alana to try and make uh, an app available from the outpatient as well to make these easier to access in your practice sites too. Um, and then our restrictions. So this is available to you at any point on our internet page to know what the restrictions are on when you can automatically get these medications pre-approved. Anything else does require ID approval. Some of those approvals are easier than others. Uh, it's generally recommended to have a conversation. Um, we, during daylight hours, there is a team who can help review these almost in real time. Um, <clears throat> but you'll see uh, as we'll go through the, how the process kind of, kind of works. They're literally a second signature, uh, so they're called second sign antimicrobials, um, and uh, the list of Jen showed is online. Um, to, during daylight hours, as it were, 8.30 to 4.30, it's critical that you actually discuss this with uh, an ID attending on call uh, as much as you can, because the way the, the order is set up. When you put a second sign order in, the, the order is actually not even visible. It goes into a limbo land. It's, it's, we can see it, uh, so pharmacists can see it, but pharmacists can't release it uh, unless there's certain criteria. Now, these criteria are approved by the ASP, by ID, uh, by the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee, and are part of institutional policy. Um, and there are two orders, and the two orders are there for safety. So the first order actually is one that is handled differently. During off hours, that one can get put through by pharmacy. We've allowed that because there may be delays. If you're waking, I mean, if you're waking up an ID doc at two in the morning, it's pretty hard to get them to think. So what you do is you tell, you tell, say you've got a kid from Ghana with a fever and we're awake, but and then you say, just kidding, I just need some uh, maripanum. <laughs> Don't ever do that. <laughs> Dr. Cohen will personally come and beat you up if you wake him up in the middle of the night for a meropatum approval. It's not, it's not needed. Um, and it's not just that, you know, stewardship doesn't count in the middle of the night, but particularly for pediatrics, there's, there's realistic you know, approaches. Getting that first dose in within an hour for, is, is, a, is a recommendation. It's incredibly important. Um, and once you've gone into a vial and you're not going to necessarily use the whole vial, you've wasted that whole vial. You may as well allow two or three doses. Um, so that's what we do. We release enough that gets you through to the next day, and then the second order 
has to be approved by uh, either the stewardship program or uh, the ID physician on call. Uh, more and more, we're starting to do this as the, the stewardship program separately from the on-call physician because the ID service has got busier. That's a good thing that we're being consulted more often, um, but it does make our jobs harder. Don't stop consulting us. Um, if you've got any questions, it's important to check with, with pharmacy or ID, and that could be the stewardship uh, co-directors too. Um, this is, uh, do we have pictures of how it looks? No. No, we didn't. Okay. Um, questions about uh, restrictions and stuff, we can address at the end or we can grab us afterwards. Uh, as Jen mentioned, there's also the other um, uh, internal links, the other things that we've done. There's the anti-biogram. This is updated every year. It's specific to Connecticut children's patients. Uh, there's an inpatient and an outpatient guide um, or anti-biogram. But there's some things here that are important to acknowledge. Um, even though meropenem is extremely susceptible, it's not recommended as a first-line drug because we will get into trouble if we keep using it, all right? Our first-line drug is actually ceftazidine for uh, uh, some of the sepsis or ceftriaxone uh, for um, the uh, non-hospital-acquired uh, sepsis. Um, we have a little bit of uh, resistance for the Enterobacteriaceae locally, but the numbers are small. Generally speaking, this is pretty good. Cefepime at the moment looks good, but in the past we've had much higher rates of resistance, particularly with Pseudomonas. Uh, we've been down to the mid-80s, um, and the reason for that is an efflux pump, and we have seen it change in response to changes in Cefepime usage. Even low levels of usage have upped the resistance rate in real time, and as we've backed off, the resistance rate's got better again. So yes, yeah, Cefepime's there in our back pocket if we need it, but it's one that we have restricted because of their concerns about resistance. Um, Gram positives for the first time this year, uh, in years, and this is a national phenomenon from people I've spoken to at the stewardship meetings, MRSA is no longer 50% of the staff isolates, it's about a third. Um, which is an interesting change, and we're not sure what's driving that, but it is something that other people around the country have, have reported. Um, and previously, it's been this inexorable climb for about a decade, up to around 50% resistance, and it's been sat there for a few years, and then this year it dropped down to about 30% MRSA. We have IVDPO recommendations, guidelines, uh, including the drugs that are um, uh, suggested, and, and then a checklist for uh, what you should consider when going to IVDPO. This is not just a, a nice idea, but it's actually been proven that if you can put this in people's uh, ears, make them think about it a little more early in hospitalization, you can uh, you know, speed up discharges. You know, a lot of people are kept until they're ready to switch to PO, but if we can switch into PO sooner, it makes a, a difference in terms of patient flow. And when we looked at the IV to PO usage, we did a snapshot look of one month, and we do a really great job here. We had over 90% of the patients who met criteria switch from IV to PO within 24 hours of them meeting criteria. So that was really awesome that we're doing a really good job. But in case people want to know, if people need resources, we do have this available. Um, but I think we've already been doing a really good job. So I think that that's important to point out is when people are doing great and you guys really are doing an awesome job of getting people's transition to oral when they are able to be. Yeah, and I, I can echo that as well in terms of some of the restricted usage. 90% um, of the restricted antimicrobial orders that go through are for vancomycin. Uh, and when I first came here, my gut reaction was, oh my God, you're not restricting vanco, what's wrong with you? 
And then I thought, well, if I start now, I'm just not going to make any progress because it's going to be a barrier to understanding and a barrier to implementation. Um, so we introduced vancomycin restriction in response to a shortage that hit us. And now it's restricted uh, on an ongoing basis because that's the right thing to do for a drug of last resort like vancomycin. But we did so knowing that so much of the um, usage was appropriate. So we don't get calls all the time for vancomycin approvals because people look at it and you're like, oh, you're using it for sepsis, that's fine, and it gets released. Um, so it's not a, a problem in that regard. This is our new ASP monthly newsletter. We now have it being sent out with the third SNAP report of the month. So the third Friday will include our ASP newsletter. And this includes metrics like how many um, ceftaralines are being used on each floor, how many daptomycins are being used, so that we have a general understanding of what is being, what is our antibiotic usage. As we get better and better technology, we'll be able to do it as more of a antibiotics per thousand patient days, so it'll be an easier metric to evaluate, but at least it's a start. We also have pathway percentage of appropriate antibiotic use. And the other thing that we've added in there are different um, notifications on what's new or some advocacy on how you can utilize antibiotics better or articles that have come out that are really important for you to know about. So that is out there and we also are putting the um, older versions of that on the intranet in case you have questions and want to go back to them. So this is some of the newer stuff that has also come down through the Joint Commission requirements. Um, that we're implementing over the next uh, few months to a year or so. A 48-hour review or antibiotic timeout on all antimicrobials. And this is something that there are certain questions you're expected to address. You know, do we still need the antibiotic? If so, do we need to keep this drug or should we switch classes? Are there culture results that we should narrow or escalate therapy based on? Um, so these are things that are coming down that really um, we should be doing anyway and, and places like the PICU and uh, many of the IMT rounds address this on a, a daily basis, but it's something now we have to prove that we've been doing. So how do you implement that in a way that makes sense, that doesn't get in the way of patient, patient care and workflow? Um, because it does make sense and it's important to do, but how do we do this meaningfully? And then a big thing that is incredibly important uh, is antibiotic duration. Uh, this feeds into uh, the idea of not just a 48-hour review, but also that many of the inappropriate use of anti antibiotics is due to a prolonged duration and excessive use. And, you know, there's a joke that in infectious disease, you have the one-hand or the two-hand rule, how many days of therapy, you only work in multiples of five or seven. Um, you no know one ever gets 35 days because that's five times seven. So, but it's true, a lot of the data we have on duration is actually lacking. And the data that is coming out of recent reports shows that we've probably been over-treating a lot of infections unnecessarily. And one way to help enforce that and change practice is to make people think, well, when am I going to stop? What's my end date? Um, you don't want a default stop of 30 days. You don't want an open-ended use of antimicrobials that would just sit in, in the record and no one's thinking about every day. But you say, at the beginning, we're going to treat for a week. And yeah, at the end of that week, if the patient's not better, we may reorder the antibiotic, that's fine. But at least you've 
thought about having a, a treatment course that's defined? So we're working right now with IT on trying out a pilot. In the NICU, they do 48 hours on a lot of their babies for rule outs, and they put an end date of 48 hours. So we're working with IT to build a system to try that out and see, will this make it so that we'll be appropriately alerted to make sure that none of these fall off? And if that works there, maybe we can roll that out to the whole house. You know, because we don't want to put in a duration just because it's what we're told to do and not have that be safe. We want to really have an effective way of alerting us to make sure that yes, we want this antibiotic to stop. And, and some of this is, is a practice and a culture change to the institution, but other institutions have already been doing this, and not just doing it, but doing it with the same medical record system that we have. So, and, and now it's not a case of, well, be nice if we could do it. A, we should do it, and B, we have to do it. And C, it's already been done, so why don't we just copy what other people are doing? Um, that's really the bottom line uh, with the duration issue. Uh, Along with the uh, vancomycin pro-pharmacy dosing protocol, there's a development of it, which is nearly done, I think, the immunoglycoside pro-pharmacy protocol, where physicians, have, or anyone, uh, prescribers, have the option of ordering an immunoglycoside and requesting pharmacy assistance with dosing. So you want to talk about Right, so about. this has been through the stewardship. It's been approved by P&T. So we're just waiting on an epic build on this when the freeze lifts to allow you to um, be able to do very similar to how you do for vancomycin, except for you're going to choose whether you want it once a day or twice a day. I'm sorry, once a day or three times a day for the aminoglycosides and how you want them monitored. Um, and once you do that, pharmacists will take care of it in the background for you. Obviously, if you want to manage it, that just like it is for vancomycin, you can always choose to manage it yourself as well. And the protocol um, will be there, and we've worked with nephrology, um, really asked us to do this um, because of the effectiveness we've had with the vancomycin per protocol. And then the next one is antimicrobial dose adjustment. Essentially, one of the other things that the CDC recommends is that is a for patients in renal dysfunction to have an approved dose adjustment and have that automatically part of the process rather than having to do phone calls back and forth of yes, this patient has renal dysfunction, somebody orders it, orders the incorrect dose, call them back, can you fix this, and so forth. So we'll, again, working on a, a protocol to automatically manage that unless you choose otherwise. Um, we always want to make it so that if there's unique situations or if you just want to monitor it yourself, you could always choose to do that. But we're trying to make it um, so that it's an easier, safer process. So that um, Kaylin, our pharmacy resident, is working with Dr. Silva on really designing that. And we're still in initial stages of that, but the first draft is made. So that's, I think you're up to date now and everything that's coming down the pike uh, in terms of antimicrobial stewardship for 2017.